Find your Bible, maybe a notebook and a pen. Leviticus chapter 25. Father, we do come before you tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what we're about to do and how privileged we are, really privileged to open the word of God and receive it. We want to make sure we have the right heart attitude to do that. So check us, Lord. Help us to be ready to receive. And Lord, also right now, before we go any further, we want to lift up our, our country to you in so many ways, but particularly with these fires, Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just want to ask, would you send rain? Lord, would you change the winds? Would you just put it out? Would you snuff it? Would you do whatever you decide to do, but would you have mercy, God? The place deserves to burn. All of this place does. But Lord, would you show mercy and kindness? And God, we just pray you'd put protection around those who are involved in fighting, whose homes are threatened, whose businesses are threatened. God, you would just show mercy. We ask this in the name of our all-powerful, mighty God of the universe and his name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so tonight, Leviticus chapter 25, and I'm going to ask you to go ahead and mark uh, also Isaiah 61 and Luke 4. If You don't have to right now, but it might save you some time later when it's crunch time and I'm trying to make my application. Um, Isaiah 61 and, and Luke chapter 4. As we come to chapter 25 of Leviticus, um, this is a long chapter, 55 verses, dealing with two very significant events on the calendar of Israel. Again, Moses is handing down the law and he's giving them all of their, their instructions before they leave Sinai and go into the land of promise, Canaan, Israel. Um, but these two things that are dealt with in this chapter are two very important items on their calendar. Number one, and, and it's covered in verses one through seven, is something called the, the sabbatical year. So if you're jotting down notes, verses one through seven is the sabbatical year. And then number two, which takes up the majority of the chapter from verses 8 through 55, is this thing called the year of Jubilee. How many of you guys have ever heard that term, the year of Jubilee? Raise your hand. Yeah, it's a pretty remark. If you haven't, it's, it's a pretty remarkable, uh, very unique thing that God worked into the rhythm of the life of Israel. And so we're going to cover those two things. My goal um, is to not spend so much time that we are actually experiencing the next year of Jubilee, which is every 50 years. My goal <laughs> is to actually get through the chapter fairly quickly uh, because we want to get to the application and how it points to Jesus, amen, and, and how it applies to our lives. Not that this stuff isn't important, but where it relates to us in our daily lives we want to get there. So I uh, won't, won't be able to cover every little nook and cranny is what I'm getting at. Well, let's just, again, two very distinct parts to the chapter. We'll look at the first one, this thing called the sabbatical year, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, that, that's the promised land, Canaan, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, you shall, um, oops. and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. Verse 6. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, for your male and female slaves or servants, for your hired worker, for your sojourners who live with you, and for the cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All of its yield shall be for food. All right. So let's just jump in here. As you know, um, or may or may not know, the word Sabbath simply means rest. That's just what it means in its 
Simplest definition. And you probably are aware of the fact that God established for the nation of Israel a, a weekly Sabbath. How many of you guys are familiar with that? A weekly Sabbath. So it was based on the idea of creation where God worked for six days and then on the seventh day he rested. So he instituted this thing called the Sabbath for the Jewish people. They would work six days, but then they were to have a day of rest. And guys, the whole point was, is that day was dedicated to the Lord, they were to not work, they were to rest their bodies and be replenished and actually become more fruitful for the upcoming week. Well, just like God instituted a Sabbath for people, he also instituted a Sabbath for the land. Did you guys catch that? The, the main word in that first seven verses is the word land. The Sabbath gets a land, or the land let me reverse that. The land gets, a, Sabbath was made for the land, not land for the Sabbath. Um, the, the land would get a Sabbath. So what, in essence, what this was is every six or the seventh year, so they would work their land, their crops, their vineyards for six years. On that seventh year, they were to not work their land, not sow the fields, no systematic um, reaping of the field, no systematic gathering in of the, from the vines. They were just to let grow what would grow. And they would, in essence, it would give the land a rest. By the way, that's just good ecology, right? We know that from science. Letting the land lay fallow actually per makes the land more fruitful. Um, letting the nitrates and the potassiums and all the stuff in the soil and the organic matter and replenishing. It's scientifically proven that that actually makes your soil better for the next year. So he's like saying, it's going to be better for you and it's going to guard you from greediness. You just need to rest and let the land rest. This Sabbath was for the land, for the people, and for the animals that work the land. He said, you're not to do it. You're not to sow. You're not to reap. Now, whatever would just naturally come up from that land, they were able to eat and enjoy, and they were to take that year to kind of refocus, replenish, and then they could work the next year. Does that make sense? Yes or no? Okay, if you don't give me an answer, I'll just keep talking. So it's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's an interesting thing. It's straightforward. Uh, here's what's fascinating about that particular law for me, is that evidently, they never did it. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, Jeremiah is one of the last prophets before Judah went into exile into Babylon for 70 years. And he predicted, 70 years, you're going into, because of their chronic sin and all of these things. But in 2 Chronicles, you can jot it down, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, this is right when they're go, like the nation of Judah is getting taken captive by Babylon. For 70 years, they're going to go into exile. And here's a reason for it, right here, verse 20. He says in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 20, He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons and to the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Listen to this phrase. Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. They were in the land for 490 years. And guess what God says? You owe my land 70 Sabbaths, and it's going to get them one way or the other. And I just thought that that was interesting because something that was designed for them to have rest and replenishment and for the land to be fruitful, and evidently, they never once actually did it. And you know why I think that was? And we're going to see this with the, with the, the, the year of Jubilee as well. How much faith did it take to do that? You guys understand what I'm saying? This is what they ate. This is how they made money. And he says, take the year off. Just eat whatever comes up by itself. You know what you have to do if you're going to do that? You have to trust God. You have to trust the Lord. And evidently, they just didn't, couldn't wrap their brain around it, wouldn't do it. And God finally punishes them and says, okay, but you're going into exile because my land's getting its Sabbath at 70 years. Interesting. Well, let's keep moving. Um, now on to the year of, or, yeah, the year of Jubilee. The first of several verses, verses 8 through 12, kind of summarize what it is, and then it gets into some details after that. So let me read that first chunk for you, verse 8. 
It says, you shall count seven weeks or Sabbaths of years, seven times, seven years, so that the time of the seventh weeks of years shall come, uh, shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. Mark that in your mind. Put that on the back burner. You shall sound the trumpet throughout all of your land. Verse 10 is the key. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan, that the 50th year shall be a jubilee for you, and in it you shall neither sow nor reap that grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. It is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat the produce of the field. So check this out. So after seven years, on the seventh year, boom, that seventh year was a sabbatical year. But after seven sabbatical years... That would be another sabbatical year, but then on the year after that would be the year of Jubilee. Does that make sense? And the 50th year, not the 49th, but the 50th year would be a year of Jubilee. So it would actually be a sabbatical year on the 49th year, and then another year of rest, another year of not sowing your fields, of not harvesting, and that would be what they called the year of Jubilee. Now, when you think of Jubilee, I don't think... I don't, you don't really use that word very much in my personal vocabulary, but we equate that with this idea of joy and happiness, and rightfully so. The word itself actually comes, the root of the word, it basically comes from the idea of a ram's horn, a shofar. And they would take the shofar, listen, on the Day of Atonement, that will come into play later, don't lose me. On the Day of Atonement, in the 50th year, they blow that thing, and listen to what it says in verse 10. It's kind of the key. It was to proclaim throughout the land, or excuse me, proclaim liberty or freedom throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. Freedom from what? Liberty from what? We're going to get into that. Oh, by the way, I, I haven't been there, but I guess in, on the Liberty Bell in, our, in Philadelphia, right, um, it's, it's Leviticus 25.10 is on there to proclaim liberty throughout the land. But this idea was is that this was a special year. This was like a reset. This is God's economic reset right here. As we're going to see all kinds of interesting things that happen. So on the Day of Atonement, they proclaim um, on this 50th year a day of jubilee, a day of liberty, freedom. It's going to deal with the return of property, uh, the setting free of slaves, the cancellation of debt, all of those things. And like I said, it's also a a double up on the sabbatical year. So now they've got to trust God for not just one year, but now two years worth of crops to come up on their own. Well, let's look at some details of this um, in verses 13 through basically verse 30, oh, I don't know, verse 34 is basically dealing with um, this idea of property. And uh, let's look at what it has to say, verse 13. In the year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of the years after the Jubilee, and you shall sell according to the number of years of crops. That's important. Verse 16. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. If the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For if the number of the crop, it is the number of crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. So this maybe sounds a little confusing, but this is what he's talking about. You have to keep in mind, when the children of Israel go into the promised land under Joshua, all of the tribes, save one, which we'll talk about in a minute, were basically given territory, real estate, chunks of land, tracts of land. It would go to their tribe, to their families, to their clan. God's intention was that 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 land would stay within the family perpetually, that they would never lose that land. And so here's what he's talking about. He says, if you sell part of your land to somebody else, one of your brothers, you sell a parcel or a chunk, a few acres or whatever to your your neighbor, um, he says, great, but really at the year of Jubilee, 
it reverts back to its original owner. How many of you guys would like that set up? So it reverts back to its original owner that you'd have to renegotiate, you know, a deal or whatever. So basically what he says here is he says, basically prorate it. You know, if, if, if it's only a few years to the next Jubilee, don't gouge them on the price. You know, be fair. And notice what he says, because actually what you're selling is crops, a harvest, how much he, that guy can get from that land. So he's basically saying don't rip one another off. Since it's going to go back to the original owner on the Jubilee, prorate the sale, basically is what he's saying. Well, verse 18, therefore you sh- now this is great. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules, perform them, and then you will dwell in your land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat of the, your fill of it, and you d- will dwell securely. Look at verse 20. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not grow or gather in our crops? He says, verse 21, I will command my blessing on your sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat of the old crop until the ninth year when the crop arrives. Did you guys catch that? Think about that. The 49th year is a sabbatical year. So that means they've got, let's just say, that. okay, so it's a seventh year, right? So they're trusting in what was going to come up from the previous sixth year. Okay, well, they get through that seventh year. But now the year of Jubilee is an eighth year. Now they got to rely on the crop from that sixth year still, for two years in a row. But then when the next year comes, they got to start planting, and, it, and then that takes time for the plants to grow up. So they've got to literally trust God for almost three years' worth of food from that sixth harvest. Does that make sense? Again, how much faith does that take? He's basically saying, guys, and it's almost like, by the way, God preemptively strikes on this. He, he's anticipating what they're going to think because he's giving them these laws. He goes, oh, and by the way, I promise I'm going to give you a huge crop in that sixth year. So don't sweat it. Just trust me. Because you can just, they're, they're like, what are we going to eat? What are we going to do? How are we going to get food? And he's like saying, hey, guys, I'm telling you, I know it doesn't make a lot of sense, but if you'll obey me, you're going to eat so much. There's going to be so much food. You're going to be secure. You don't have to sweat it. You know, a very simple application that just popped into my head on this were the words of Jesus when he said in Matthew 6, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these other things will be added unto you. And what was he talking about? Food, clothes, stuff, material things. He's not saying we should be lazy. He's not saying we shouldn't try hard. But you know what he's saying is, prioritize obedience to me. You know, sometimes people work themselves to death, and it's not because they necessarily have to, but it's driven out of fear. And, it's, and, and I don't have time for church, and I don't have time for Bible study, and I don't have time to serve the Lord, because i got to work, 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 work. And, and I think this might be a word for somebody tonight. What if we did what Jesus said? If we sought first, almost said seeked, sought first, the kingdom of God, and just trusted that all these other things God will provide. Amen? He's a, he is faithful. I love how he just anticipated their doubt and inserted a promise right there before they could get it out of, out of their mouths. Well, now he deals with a little more nitty-gritty stuff with property. Just hang in there with me. It's, it's all very, it's interesting. It's got some um, cool applications, I suppose, for us. But uh, verse 23 he says, the land shall not be sold in per- perpetuity. Is, is that right? What version do you have? Perpet- I, don't, I don't know if I've ever actually used that word in a sentence. Until tonight. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. For the land is mine. <laughs> and you're strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country that you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. Now, I want to stop there because God is actually, if you don't get this verse, you won't understand the rest of what's about to follow as it related to the laws of the land. What he basically was declaring is this, the land is mine. He basically was telling them, all of Israel, all of the promised land that you're going into, I'm actually the owner of the land, not you. You're like my tenants, you're going to come and go, but that land belongs to me. And what I'm declaring, God would say, is throughout this whole history, I'm going to allow for redemption of the land. And that's what we're about to t- talk about. And what that means is God was always going to op- have a window open to where 
so they wouldn't lose the land out of their family that they could always buy it back. If it gets lost in you know, bankruptcy or this or that, God would always provide a way to redeem it, to bring it back. And so let's look at some of the, I guess, circumstances that could come up, possibilities. Verse 25, he says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then the nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what your brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it, pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return uh, to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to restore, recover it, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. That's pretty straightforward. Did you guys catch that? So a guy's poor. He's got to sell off part of his land. At some, any time during that time, if he, like, gets a new job and makes bank, you know, and he's got enough money to buy it back, he always has the right to do that. Or, now, this is where it gets very interesting and tempting to divert. We're introduced now to the concept of something called the kinsman redeemer, or the goel in Hebrew. This is a really important and wonderfully prophetic concept that's being injected here. The idea is this, that if I lose part of my land, if I have a close relative, stipulation number one, who has the money, stipulation number two, and is willing, stipulation number three, he can redeem that for me and give it back to me. Does that make sense? I'm not going to go off on this. I just want to accentuate it because it's actually an important concept, especially when you're reading through your Bibles and you come to the Old Testament book of Ruth. And there's a guy named Boaz who happens to be the kinsman redeemer, the close relative of Naomi, right? So she can, or he can buy Ruth, the Moabitess. If you haven't read Ruth, you have no idea what I'm talking about. And if you haven't read Ruth, read it tonight because it's actually a story of how Jesus Christ has redeemed us and bought us back. Our close relative, God, became a man who was able to purchase us because he paid for it with his blood and he was willing because he loved us. Amen? Just a beautiful picture. And that concept of the Goel or the kinsman redeemer is introduced right here as it relates to redeeming land. Another circumstance, verse 29, if a man sells a dwelling of a house, so this isn't land, but it's a home, okay, a house. And if it's in a walled city, he, re- he uh, may redeem it within a year of that sale. For a full year, he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall be uh, belong perpetually or in perpetuity, (laughs) to the buyer throughout his generations, and it shall not be released in the Jubilee, but the houses of the villages shall, uh, the houses of the villages that have no wall around them uh, shall be classified like fields and land. So they may be redeemed um, and released in the Jubilee. So again, not that we need to know all these details, but basically if you sell a home and it's in a walled city, That whole law of redemption lasts for one year. After that one year, it doesn't go back to the original owner at Jubilee. He has no right to redeem it anymore. It's just his. That makes sense? If it's in a village, not a walled city, it's treated like the land. So he always has the right to redeem it. And if not, at the year of Jubilee, it kicks back to him. As if that wasn't complicated enough, verse 32. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the house and the cities they possess. If one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee, for the houses in the cities of the Levites are the possession among the people of Israel, but the fields of pasture land belonging to the cities may not be sold, for that is the possession forever, their possession forever. I'm not going to open all of this up for you. Suffice it just for tonight that the Levites were a special tribe. Remember I mentioned all the tribes got land in the nation when they came in? There was one tribe that actually didn't, and that was the tribe of Levi. They were a special tribe. They were a tribe that was set apart to serving God. 
the Levites were in charge of serving in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And if you happen to be a Levite and from the family of Aaron, you were actually a priest. And God did something interesting. I guess I'm already diverting, so here we go. Um, God did something interesting. He didn't give them land, an inheritance in the land. He said to them, I am your inheritance. And what he did is he sprinkled them by giving them cities. He peppered them all throughout north, south, east, west, central, you know, all in that territory as if to just say, I want my people, my servants, spread out, peppered all throughout the countryside. And I think of, that's a great application for us. You know, we, we may not have what the world has, but, but you know, what God does with his servants is he, he, he strategically spreads us out, doesn't he? He puts us in the school. He puts us in the restaurants. He puts us in the mechanic. He puts us as a, as a, um, a carpenter. He puts us, you understand what I'm saying? He's put you where he's put you because he's spreading out his servants to be ministers to the rest of the country. Just a kind of a cool concept. Be that as that may, um, they were allowed to just always redeem a city um, or a house rather that was within one of their designated cities. Okay. You guys are doing great. We're going to switch gears now because he goes from talking about property, and now he's going to start talking about people. This is where it gets kind of, I mean, you can really drill into this and, and, and kind of get lost in a lot of the details. I'll try not to do that. But look at verse 35. He says, if your brother becomes poor, and by brother he just meant your kinsman, and he cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall be able to live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you a land in Canaan to be your God. Before he starts talking about this, he, he sets this tone and he says, look, if one of your countrymen falls on hard times and they're poor, he basically is saying, don't take advantage of them. Treat them like a stranger. And then with that, like for us, we're like, oh, stranger danger. No, like for them, the idea of treating them like a stranger was, I mean, an absolute culture of hospitality. You take them in, you love on them, you give them food, you give them what they need. And he says, treat them like that, do that. And if, and if you do loan them money, okay, that's fine. But don't you dare loan it with, a, you know, X amount of interest attached to it. You're basically giving them that money at 0% for the life of the loan. Does that make sense? The whole idea was is that um, he's saying have compassion and basically what? N not just enable them to live forever in that state, but help them get back on their feet is the idea. Take them in, love on them, have compassion, help them get going again. That was God's heart. Well, verse 39 if your brother, now listen, this gets, it's pretty important. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve you like a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve you with, until the year of Jubilee. Then shall he go out from you and he and his children with him and go back to his own clan and return uh, to the possession of his fathers. For there are many servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, and they shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for the male or female slaves from whom you have, who you have, um, as for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers whom sojourn with you and their clans that are with you. You have been born, that have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons in your inheritance and as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers and the people of Israel, you shall not rule uh, one over another ruthlessly. Now, this brings up a very hot topic of slavery. First of all, let me deal with the text. What he basically was saying was, if one of your brother, your kinsmen, your fellow Israelites becomes poor, he may sell himself to you um, and to pay off his debt, and then if the year of Jubilee kicks in, he gets set free. And then he makes this idea, okay, all of that, though, doesn't 
doesn't come into play for any Gentile slaves or servants you might have. And then he says that they're perpetual slaves. Here's the thing that, and we could talk all night about it. We won't. I just want to touch on it because it is such a hot topic. Because here's what you hear from time to time. The Bible condones slavery. Does it? What does the Bible have to say about slavery? And it can be a touchy subject. In fact, that's a difficult text that we just read. But here's a couple things that you need to keep in mind. By and large, when you're talking about slavery in the Bible, it is way different than what we experience in the history of our country. When you're dealing with the Hebrews, a couple of things. Number one, it was not like a slave, like we think of a slave. It was a, they were to be treated as what? Hired workers. And number two, it was volitional. In other words, Exodus chapter one tells us that if you were on hard times and you wanted to pay off your debt, you could volunteer as a hired worker to somebody to pay off your debt. Does that make sense? And they were to be treated with the utmost respect and dignity like a family member. And if they were released, they were to be released with their family. You can go back to Exodus 21 and get a lot more information about it. But it's sometimes a battle of terms because we say slavery and we automatically are thinking of like slave ships and buying. God actually completely, unequivocally, I don't even know if that's the right use of that word, forbids that in Exodus 21.6 where he says if you kidnap, sell, or purchase somebody that has been kidnapped that you're to be, like, put to death. So the Bible has absolutely no tolerance for that. This is primarily dealing with this idea of, of it's called slavery, but it was more like um, a hired servant. Does that make sense? And it's the same idea in the Greco-Roman Empire. It was much of the same idea uh, when Paul's talking about slavery, and there's much more we could say about that. One of the things that people trip up on is like, oh, it's dealing with slavery, so the Bible's condoning it. Listen, the Bible deals with divorce too, but it doesn't condone it. By virtue of the fact that there's a law regulating it shows that God is saying there's a problem with the way it was happening and the human heart is wicked, so I've got to put parameters on what's happening, but God basically says all men and women were created in the image of God, Amen. And so there were allowances and there was regulations, but in no way, shape, or form, and when you pull the, all of the texts that deal with slavery together, you come to a very clear conclusion that God, uh, the Bible does not condone slavery. Uh, we're talking about kind of two different things, actually. And then when, it, when you are talking about slavery, slavery, um, it absolutely does not condone that. So you can be confident that no, your friends that will come at you and say, the Bible, listen, unfortunately, Christians have used the Bible to justify slavery in years past. And they were wrong. Because you can't. Because the Bible does it. Amen? Okay, so I can see that I've stirred the pot. I'll let Steve deal with the rest of that. So, Verse 47, if a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich... And your brother beside him becomes poor, so a Gentile guy becomes rich, but when you guy, your guy becomes poor, you can sell yourself to him um, uh, or to a member of the stranger's clan. Then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. Uh, one of his brothers may be redeem him, or his uncle or cousin may redeem him, or a close relative or a clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. Verse 50, he shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he was sold from uh, himself to him until the year of the jubilee, and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years, the time which with the owner shall be rated as the time of a hired worker. There's that idea again, verse 51. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for his redemption, some of the sale price, verse 52. If there remain but a few years until the year of jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for the redemption in the proportion to the years of his service. You guys catching all this? Verse 53. He shall treat him as a worker, a hired year by year. He shall not rule over him ruthlessly um, in your sight. And if there is no one to redeem by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released on the year of Jubilee. It is to me that the people of Israel are servants. That's key. I love this. He throws this in. It's to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants who I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The main thing I want us to just come away with, instead of getting lost in all the details of that, 
Here's the main big idea. At the year of Jubilee, anybody who is strapped into that circumstance of having to be an indentured servant or a slave or whatever, they got to go free. Amen? So when that horn blew, it was a pr- they were free, even if they were two years into it. And by the way, I forgot to mention this. Exodus chapter 21 says that if somebody did sell themselves into slavery, a Jew, they could only be in slavery for six years. So that six years or the year of Jubilee, whatever kicks in first, and they're set free. So how excited do you think they would be? How much do you think they're calculating or counting the days till the next Jubilee? And like, oh, dang, 40 years, <laughs> that ain't good, or whatever. So I guess six years, but... Anyway, that's the whole idea. That's the point. Again, you get the idea. The 50th year, the blowing of the ram's horn, the shofar, would signify the year of Jubilee, a year that no doubt they would look forward to. There was a returning of property. There was a returning of people. There was a set free, a a restart, a fresh start. Now, got it? Okay, now, This is what I want to do to just kind of maybe bring it home for us tonight. Interesting note. Turn to Isaiah 61 for a moment. Isaiah 61. While you're turning there, I just want to remind us of the key verse of the year of Jubilee. It's chapter 2510 where it says, You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land. That's what this was. This year was a proclamation of liberty. Because of that very phrase, and it's the exact same words that show up in Isaiah 61, I'll read it to you, Isaiah 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty, there it is, to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what I just read to you in Isaiah 61 is a highly messianic prophecy. In other words, Isaiah 61, the Jews looked at Isaiah 61 as a clearly a prophetic passage of the coming Messiah. The Messiah would do those things, that he would proclaim that liberty, that he would be the one to open the eyes of the blind and heal the brokenhearted and all of that. They looked at it as that. But some also looked at it evidently as, that is Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, some also looked at that passage as dealing with the year of Jubilee. Now, why that's significant is because Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, in his, listen, first sermon, maybe not his first sermon, but his first biblically recorded sermon He's in his hometown. He's popular at this point. Crowds are following him. He's in the synagogue. They hand him the scroll. He opens it up to what we would call Isaiah 61. They didn't have numbers and verses back then. And he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And he has sent me, listen, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed, freedom, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Oh, by the way, he stopped mid-sentence there. And Isaiah 61 goes on to say, and the year of God's vengeance. What's interesting is he didn't read any further because he didn't come to bring God's vengeance the first time. That's what he's gonna do the second time he comes. But what's fascinating is, back to Luke 4, he hands, he reads that part, he stops, I'm just paraphrasing at this point, hands the scroll back to the the guys in charge and says, sits down, says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears. And then he drops the mic, boom. What did he just say? Everybody knew what he said. He said, I am the Messiah. That highly messianic passage that you've known since you were you know, in kindergarten, you know, Jewish kindergarten school, and they taught you that someday the Messiah will come and fulfill that, it's me. It's me. Now, the point I want to make about that right now is this. There are some, and they can't prove it either way, but there are some that believe, based on that, 
that Jesus started his ministry in a jubilee year. We don't know for sure. There's some that argue that. There's some that argue against it. All I'm saying is it's interesting. It's fascinating. It, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if, if the God orchestrated the calendar to where on a year of jubilee, they came in and Jesus shows up and says, I'm here to proclaim liberty. Amen? Freedom. Now, whether or not Jesus actually did that up for grabs, I don't know if we'll ever know if we'll get to heaven or if we'll even care when we get to heaven, but it's fascinating nonetheless. But here's what is where it kind of comes home for me, is that regardless of when it started, I want to just remind us of this, Jesus is our jubilee. Amen? I'm going to give you four words. They all start with R. Easy for you to remember I'm not going to expound on them too much because you can dig on them all you want. But four words that start with R that kind of sum up what Jubilee was and how Jesus fulfills it for us. Number one, remission. I'm using the word remission because it starts with R. Otherwise, I would just use the word forgiveness. Remission, King James Version of forgiveness or pardon is what it literally means. Guys, did you catch when the year of Jubilee started? The happiest year of all, every 50 years, when did it start? On the saddest day of the year, the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when the whole nation fasted and mourned and prayed over their sin. But at some point during that day, the high priest would bring in the goats and they would lay their hands on one and let it go and lay their hand on the other and kill it and take it behind the veil and atone for the sins of the people. And he would come out and say, forgiven. And guys, listen, Jubilee was ushered in on a day of forgiveness. Amen? And Jesus is our jubilee because when you come to Jesus and you're forgiven of your sin, that ushers in jubilee. Amen? And the soul of every man, woman, boy, and girl. When we come to Christ and realize he's the lamb of God that was slain on our behalf on the cross and he died for our sins. Isaiah 53 talks about our, him bearing our sins, meaning sins taking off of us, put onto him, and then him paying for us, and then him giving us his righteousness. Guys, we are forgiven because of Jesus, amen? He is our jubilee because there's forgiveness with him. Secondly, the second R word was rest. The whole point of the Jubilee was rest. To rest. They would rest another year. They would just rest. And guys, um, I'll just give you Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Jesus is our Jubilee. Jesus is our Sabbath. It says in Hebrews 4, 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest also rested from his works. He says in verse 11, let us therefore enter that rest uh, or strive to enter that rest so that no man will fall by the same sort of disobedience. There's a lot of context in that. But basically this, guys, once you come to Christ and you're forgiven of your sins and you realize he did all the work to make you right before God, you can rest. From what? Striving. Trying. Oh, God, can we please get this message out that Christianity is not a message of try harder to be better. Christianity is a message of I'm no good, but Jesus loves me, forgave my sin, and he made me good. That's Christianity. And we as Christians sometimes fall into this. I love the way the Hebrew writer says, work really hard to enter into his rest. Why does he say that? It's hard for us to rest. It's, we want to somehow put our hand to it or, or work it out or have some part to play. And God's like, will you just stop it? Will you just let me love you? Let me bless you? Let me forgive you without you trying to take part in the whole thing? It's so hard. It goes against the grain because it's humbling. Because it means you just have to receive grace without trying to pay God back. And when you get that, oh my gosh, it'll wreck you in the greatest way. Just rest. Remission, rest, release. It was a time of the releasing of people that were enslaved, even though it wasn't slavery like we talked about. It was still a sort of slavery. It was this, this bound up and, and, and just in bondage to debt and all these things and servitude and all of that. And on the year of Jubilee, they were set free. Guys, listen, we have not only been forgiven, we can not only rest, but we have been set free from the chains of sin. 
This is, I think, Satan's greatest lie to Christians. We rejoice in the fact that we're forgiven, but you know what we don't focus enough on is that we have also the power over sin now. We have been set free from the power of sin. And I would just refer you, because we don't have time to develop that, but I would just refer you to Romans 6 that says if we died with him, we also live with him, and we can live in resurrection life now. It doesn't mean we don't have the capability of sinning. We do. But the sin does no, has no, no longer has the same power over us as it did before. Before you were a Christian, sin would say jump, and you would say how high. I think Pastor Steve puts it that way. I like that. And now we may fail, we may fall from time to time, but guys, we actually have been freed from the very power of sin in our lives, and we can walk in victory. Someday we'll be free from the very presence of sin, amen, when we're in heaven. And then lastly, I'm sure there's more to this, but these are just four things I'm pulling out. Number four is restoration. They were given back their land. I get teary-eyed thinking about this one because, listen, how many of you guys wrecked your lives and you came to Jesus and had he just forgiven you, that would have been enough. Set you free from the power of sin, that would be enough. But how many of you guys have found out he also has a way of restoring what's been broken and lost? Taking broken, fouled up lives that we fouled up and he's so gracious to rebuild broken lives to give people hope again, to give purpose again, to say, I know you screwed up and no, you don't deserve to ever do that again, but I'm gonna let you do it again anyway because I love you. Fix relationships, fix marriages, fix, he doesn't, I mean, sometimes things are broken and they're gonna stay broken, but in other ways, God finds ways to just restore, as Joel puts it, the years that the locusts have eaten. Anybody ever experienced that, by the way? Any, honestly, anybody ever said, yeah, Jesus has rebuilt and restored things in my life, for sure, yeah. Jesus is our jubilee. Whether he actually started his ministry on that day, that doesn't really matter, but he is our jubilee. But I do want to say, and I'll end on this, and that's pretty good for 55 verses. We're going to get out of here in 45 minutes. That's not bad. Um, you know what's crazy? There's no record that they ever actually did the year of Jubilee. There's no record that they didn't, but there's no record that they ever did. Just like they never did the, the, the sabbatical year, there's no record that the nation of Israel ever actually enjoyed a year of Jubilee. Which is fascinating because when Jesus stood before them and said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to open the eyes of the blind, to set at liberty those who are captive. Do you know what the response was? Great sermon, Jesus. That was a great sermon. Whoa, and they marveled at his kind words. And then they turned to each other and said, isn't that Joseph's son? Who does that guy think he is? I'm a... You know how that day ended? You know how his sermon ended? He gave him a parable. He said, you know, there was a lot of widows in the days, and he, and he basically gives examples of how God in previous days reached out to Gentiles because Jews rejected the message. They grab Jesus, they haul him out to Nazareth, and I don't know if you've ever been to Nazareth. In Nazareth, which is on a hill, there's this huge outcropping of rocks and goes straight down. Most people think that's where they drug him to, and they were gonna kill him. Nice sermon. Now we'd like to kill you. Now you know how, how a pastor feels every Sunday morning. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> Nice sermon, but we're going to kill you. <laughs> um, they drag Jesus out, and they're going to throw him off the cliff, but in a, in a display of his sovereignty, it says he just walks through the crowd, and they're just like, they couldn't touch him <laughs> for some reason because he's like God or something. But the, here's, in all seriousness, here's why I'm bringing that up. The very one that could heal them, fix them, forgive them, restore them, them was three feet away from them and they missed it. They never enjoyed it. Why? Because it required faith. 
There was no record of them ever doing a year of Jubilee. I can't explain why, but I would venture a guess that it had to do with a lack of faith. What good does all these rules and cool things about the year of Jubilee do if they don't actually enjoy it and do it? Amen? You can amen all these things about Jesus being Jubilee, but what good does it do you unless you, by faith, appropriate the truth of it tonight? What I want to say to you tonight is that Jesus is your jubilee tonight. He's the one that can forgive you tonight, give you rest tonight, restore you tonight, set you free from bondage of sin tonight. We're not talking theories, people. We're talking about a person who is alive and who is here and who is able and willing and wanting to do this in your life in a way that's real. Let us not leave here saying, good sermon, and miss that Jesus is in our midst tonight and wants to be our jubilee. Are you with me? Well, how does that work? I don't know. Pray or something. Come before him tonight and say, Lord, tonight, I don't want you just to be in theory on paper, my jubilee. I need you to be my personal year of jubilee tonight. I need forgiveness for things I've failed. And maybe you've never received Jesus as your savior. Did you know that you can be forgiven of all your sins, all of the things you, you can be free from every piece of guilt and wrongdoing in your life because Jesus paid for it already? You can have that tonight? Did you know that you, the sin that's just hounded you your whole life, you may struggle, but you can have freedom over that in Christ? Did you know that you can call out to him to restore the brokenness in your life and he would love to come in and start that restoration process? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the very one. You are the fulfillment of the Jubilee. It's all about you, Lord, and we come to you and we praise you for our forgiveness, those of us who've received it. We pray, God, that you'd help us to rest in your finished work. I pray, God, right now that we would have the power over those sins that so easily trip us up. God, I pray for anybody here tonight that is just reaping from a, a wrecked life and bad decisions and all those things, God, I thank you that there's not only forgiveness, there's, a, there's restoration. And I pray you'd restore and fix what's broken, God. Maybe there's relationships between other brothers and sisters. Maybe there's just, I don't know, God, whatever it is you want to fix. But Lord, we just want to cry out to you tonight. Let's just think.